Welcome to the Piano Whisperer Podcast. He said, you know, the best thing about performing in a church in Cornwall is that there's a set of steps that go out the door, and then there's going to be a little stone path, and in these small towns, that stone path leads inevitably to the town pub, and that, <laughs> and that is where we're going to go. And um, so we went there, and we talked about everything. We talked about all sorts of things, just not about performing, not about music. Yeah. Hello, everybody, and thank you once again for tuning in to Piano Whisperer. My name is Ben Klinger, and for better or worse, I am your host. And I am so excited today to have with me a very special guest, pianist Xuan Chai. Xuan Chai is an active and engaging performer recognized for her interpretations on a wide range of historical pianos as well as the modern piano. She began piano lessons at age five in a group class at the local YWCA and had a number of wonderful teachers in her early years, including Jack Radunsky, a former student of the pianist-composer Percy Granger. His lessons instilled a great interest and admiration of early recordings and of the romantic tradition of piano playing. After earning degrees from Oberlin and the New England Conservatory, Schwann studied privately with Norma Fisher in London, Klaus Christian Schuster, and worked extensively with Canadian pianist Anton Querty. After being based in Boston for more than a decade, Schwann moved permanently to the Netherlands in 2007. Concerto performances include the Beethoven Festival at Zutphen, where she was the soloist in Beethoven's Choral Fantasy, conducted by Jan Willem de Vriend, Mendelssohn's first concerto with the New Dutch Academy, and Beethoven's second concerto with the Bloomington Early Music Festival Orchestra under Stanley Ritchie. Festival and other concert appearances include Le Folle Journée in Tokyo, Bach and Cambriel in France, Trollsalen in Norway, St. Cecilia's Hall in Edinburgh, Jordan Hall in Boston, Forbidden City Concert Hall in Beijing, and the American Church of Paris. She was also invited to give the first solo recital in the newly built Herzsaal in Utrecht's Trivoli-Vredenburg in 2014. Schwann regularly gives master classes and lecture recitals at institutions such as Temple University, University of California, Davis, Code Arts, Rotterdam, Netherlands, Gulan Yu Piano Academy, Xiamen, China, and Central Conservatory in Beijing. She has also been active in community outreach on both sides of the Atlantic, having performed hundreds of concerts in care facilities, senior living centers, music schools, and libraries. In 2014, she began the Arts Duke Ensemble, a mixed instrument collective dedicated to performing chamber music on historical instruments in the classical and romantic tradition. In 2012, Schwann's debut CD of three Beethoven sonatas on the forte piano was released, garnering enthusiastic reviews in publications such as Fanfare Magazine, BBC Music Magazine, and the Classical Music Sentinel. The experience of recording the CD gave Schwann the impetus to embark on a larger-scale project of performing all 32 of Beethoven's piano sonatas on historical instruments. She expects to complete the cycle by the end of 2020. Upcoming projects include a series of video recordings for the Beethoven sonatas, as well as a collaboration with Belgian-Iranian photographer Mashid Mohajarin, featuring contemporary photography synced with a live performance of Mussorgsky's pictures at an exhibition. Among other things, Schwanchai is grateful for having three inspiring musical companions, a concert grand Steinway signed by jazz legends Herbie Hancock and Ahmad Jamal, an original Arard piano from 1861, and an original 1820 Rosenberger forte piano 
generously provided on permanent loan by the National Musical Instruments Foundation of the Netherlands. Schwan, it's so great to have you here with me today. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I'm so glad we could work this out. Technology is a wonderful thing, being able to join you in the Netherlands in real time here. So I want to begin by asking some questions which were prompted by your bio. First, I would love to hear more about the origins of your deep interest in early instruments. Were there some specific aha moments in your early years, or how did this interest begin in you? Because by the time you were at Oberlin as an undergrad, you majored in biology, of all things, and piano, and you also minored in forte piano, which was a very unusual major. So that interest must have already been well-developed by that time. Yes, for sure. Growing up in Oberlin, because I was what they call townie. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I got to sit in on a lot of master classes and different classes from visiting professors. And I just had the luck to hear about a forte piano master class given by a man named Malcolm Bilson. And Malcolm was kind of a pioneer in early instruments in America, and he gave a week's worth of master classes. And he's such a charismatic and informative teacher. I went to as many of the classes as I could. I loved the sound of the instrument, and I loved what you could do with it, the articulation and the color and the phrasing. And so I basically just went up to him and asked if I could come and stay in Ithaca, New York, which is where he was living at the time, to stay in Ithaca for a couple of weeks over the summer and just have private lessons with him and get to know this whole world. Mm. And even though he probably thought it was weird for, I don't know, I think I was 14 or 15 at the time. Wow. Um, yeah. So, and my parents let me go. And yeah, it was really a singular experience to be subletting a grad student apartment just off campus at Cornell University and walking over to Malcolm's house every day for hours and hours of lessons. And he had a fantastic collection of pianos, everything from a Mozartian five octave piano wow. to um, early 20th century Steinways, beautiful things. And hearing him play and demonstrate on all of those instruments as well. So I would say for instruments, definitely Malcolm was a huge influence for me and having those early experiences were really formative. And for this older style of playing, I guess what you would call romantic piano playing from like early recordings and things, that came a lot from a teacher of mine named Jack Radansky, who who is in my bio. He was a student of Percy Granger, who is a a really mm -hmm. charismatic piano teacher, Australian, and he was teaching in Chicago at the time. And I guess the best story about Percy Granger that I heard was that one of his first lessons, um, my teacher Jack came in and he was going to play the Tchaikovsky first piano concerto for him. And Percy said, yeah, I'm really tired, so I'm just going to take a nap, but you feel free to warm up. And so Percy <laughs> just laid down under the piano. And Jack was kind of tiptoeing around and playing a note here and a note there. And he said, no, come on, what are you going to play for me today? Well, let's just get on with it, warm up. And so he banged away at the chords. And four minutes later, Percy Granger just jumped up and said, oh, that was very refreshing. <laughs> so he was a really individualistic guy. And my teacher, Jack, was so just obsessed, almost would be the word, with kind of the golden era of piano recording of Rachmaninoff, Joseph Hoffman. Mm -hmm. And since my mom used to run a Chinese restaurant when I was a kid, I would go and bring him lunch, bring Jack lunch. And he would sit there and eat his egg roll and things and say, oh, I've got this fantastic recording you've got to hear. And then I'd be there all afternoon. So I had piano lessons with him, of course, but I would say even more that just sitting around and listening to music and talking to him about music, I would say that forms the core of what I try to do. Yeah. 
Yeah. A true mentor in that respect, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So when we listen to the recording a little bit later in this podcast, we'll be listening to some of these early instruments. And one question that came to mind that strangely had never occurred to me, having been in the piano business forever, but it occurred to me when I was listening to you, do you think the early pianos that you're playing and recording, for example, the 1820 Rosenberger pianoforte, do you think they sound similar to how they did when they were new? So do you think that these sounds are the same that Beethoven might have heard when he was able to hear it when he was working? I think that's hard to say. The Rosenberger is, of course, restored, so it's not in mm-hmm. completely original condition. And when someone builds a copy nowadays of such an instrument, it does sound different. So I don't know mm. if there's 200 years of aging on this Rosenberger. Yeah. And certainly it makes a really big difference if an instrument is played continuously over that time and the wood yeah. is breathing, living music. So yeah, it's hard to say, but I, I'd like to think that it's something close, or at least that it belongs to the sound world that Beethoven or his contemporary composers would have recognized. Yeah. When I listen and watch you play some of your videos, which we'll talk about a little bit later, Mm -hmm. I get that impression that you're connecting with that idea of that's how they would have also been processing the sound. So I have a question for you, though. So you have this 1820 Rosenberger pianoforte in your possession. Mm -hmm. How did you manage to arrange a permanent loan from the National Music (laughs) Instrument Foundation? Persistence, I think, is, is the short answer. When I moved to Holland, I heard about this organization. And in the first sentence, when this cellist colleague of mine was telling me about the organization, he said, well, but they only have stringed instruments. They don't do pianos. They don't do pianos. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, okay, okay. So I went to a couple of concerts of colleagues who had stringed instruments from them. And I met them and I kind of just floated the idea of a historical piano. Mm-hmm. And it took a few years. I mean, they had to get to know me. They had to think about how good of an investment it would be to acquire a historical piano for their collection. And I have to say, they, they really took a chance. And it's really been a life changer for me to have this downstairs. I mean, it's, it's such a luxury. I'll bet it's paid off for them too, though, because you've shot all these beautiful videos with that piano and they've gotten quite a few views. You really do have a deep understanding of these older instruments. And as I say, watching and hearing you, you seem to feel the pianos as I would imagine Beethoven feeling them. And this really comes across in your Beethoven video performances, which I think also, by the way, are beautifully shot. Thank you. Yeah, I would encourage anybody to find those on YouTube and watch. It's beautiful. So what kinds of things, in your opinion, do pianists need to consider differently when they play an early pianoforte? It must be a very different experience. It is. It's a lot less weight to contend with. I would say on a modern piano, you get a lot of, like the piano pushes you back quite a lot. So it's different. But the defining character for me is that the earlier you go, each piano really has its own character. It has its own voice. And... Mm-hmm. Actually, it might sound really strange, but this Rosenberg is built by Michael Rosenberger. And I very shortly after I got this piano, I started referring to the piano as Mike. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> That's so funny. Felt, right. You know, it just felt like it, he just felt like a Mike. Yeah. Yeah. And that we had a, I don't know, a, a friendship. 
that we understood each other and he understood what I wanted to do, where I wanted to go with an interpretation. I hear a lot of pianists say like, oh, well, this isn't a good piano or this is a great piano or this. And I think what we really mean when we say that actually is this feels familiar to me. This feels- yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I can do what I want on it easily because it's close to what I know and what I expect. But the truth is with early pianos, there's just such a huge range of touch, color, condition uh, you have to consider that every time I approach one of these early instruments, I really have to kind of listen to it. Mm -hmm. I really feel like it's getting to know a person and how some people you can really admire and really um, appreciate, but they're not like your companions for the long haul, let's say. Yeah, that's really interesting. I read everywhere online that you're recognized specifically for your interpretations of the music you play. And I wanted to ask why people might view your interpretations in a different light. But I'm wondering now that you're talking, if it has something to do with your bond with the individual piano that you're playing. But could you shed some light on that? The piano that I'm playing definitely informs what I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. Like with pedal, for example, some have a really resonant upper area or lower area. And sometimes a pedal just muddles everything up. It depends on the acoustic of the room. So mm -hmm. for sure, I do make changes uh, whenever I meet a new piano and make concessions for the room. But I, I don't know. I really think that a performance is kind of like a, a snapshot of where you are today or that day that you're performing. Mm -hmm. And so it's, I, I don't really try to, to make a statement that this is what I think about this piece, or this is what I think about Beethoven. And this is what I, mm -hmm. uh, it's not conclusive for me. It's something that evolves over time. Yeah, that makes sense. It's the same thing in jazz in an improvisation. And given that much of music from that time period really was improvised, it would make sense that they did the same thing. I mean, who sits down at the piano and says, I'm going to interpret my piano this way. But when you look back in retrospect over a span of a couple hundred years, we can get kind of prudish about mm -hmm. it, I guess, and say, well, he intended this. But we have no idea if that's true, unless they specifically wrote about that, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, interesting, Miss Chai. That's interesting. <laughs> so now you left the U.S. for the Netherlands more than a decade ago. And I just wanted to know, was there a musical reason for that? Is there more of a musical community there? Just I was curious. I had a wonderful musical community in Boston and mm -hmm. great friends in that community. And I miss them a whole bunch, I have to say. But uh, I feel really lucky that I've landed here and that I have a, a great community here as well. In the beginning, mm -hmm. I, I think I wanted to give it a try. I, I had met a lot of musicians from Europe when I came to do a couple of festivals, one mm -hmm. in Germany and one in the UK. It just seemed like an interesting possibility. And, and I felt like if I moved to Europe and it didn't work out, that I could come back to Boston and like it didn't really seem risky at the time. I mean, financially, mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of risky. Yeah. <laughs> moving across the Atlantic and then moving back. Yeah, right. but it was but, <laughs> an adventure to try, basically. Exactly. And I, I felt that the time was right for me to try something mm -hmm. like that. In the beginning, I kind of gave myself two years. And after those two years, mm -hmm. which went in some ways spectacularly badly, I, I, thought, <laughs> I thought, well, that wasn't very fair. I need another two years. And here yeah. I am. Okay. So I want to talk about your new recording now. You have a new recording coming out with flutist Tammy Krauss. Is uh -huh. that right? Yes, that's right. 
and I confess I'm, I'm typically not a flute fan, but she is really fabulous. And together you two are very special. You definitely have this unique and special musical connection with each other. And I'm sure lots had to have been lots and lots of practicing together. Can you tell me a little bit about that connection? Yeah. Well, Tammy lives uh, about two canals away from me here in The Hague. And I first started working with her in a, in the context of a larger ensemble. And I was just struck by her dedication, her tenacity, and her kind of no-holds-barred approach to expression. And yeah, she really had something to say. And that was really striking to me. And also her personality is very, she's not a wallflower. She stands up. And I'm sure you can hear that. Yeah. She's bold. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And very intentional. Yes. Yeah. And I love that. And when she said, well, I I really want to make a CD, then I, yeah, jumped in with both feet because it can be a really difficult experience, but you always learn a lot. And I thought, who better to learn with someone so dedicated? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you guys are magical together. And I also thought the story behind the name you chose for your recording, Kulni Klau, was really fun. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Sort of the Bach challenge, if you will? <laughs> sure. Right? Yeah. yeah. Well, Beethoven was a really interesting figure, quite full of character and full of amazing sound bites. And wherever he went, it was always kind of unpredictable what was going to happen. So he mm-hmm. met Kulau at a really nice gathering of musicians on an autumn day. They all went for um, a hike and then came back and started eating and drinking. And I guess they got pretty inebriated when Kulau started, <laughs> um, <laughs> as they did in the day. I mean, you couldn't really drink water, right? So it was yeah. beer all the time and then some stuff on on top, like to make things merry. And so Kulau at one point started saying, okay, let's do these canons on mm-hmm. uh, on the name of Bach. Let's see who can do the best one. And everyone sat down and kind of improvised a canon, which is like kind of like a fugue, you know. And yeah. then the name of Bach is B-A-C-H. So that would be B flat, A, C natural, and then B natural. Yeah. For a lot of people who don't know that H is B natural. Yes, B yeah. natural, yeah. Yeah, and apparently the next morning, Beethoven woke up severely hungover from the champagne and thought back to the canon that he had presented to everyone and was a little embarrassed about it. So he decided to <laughs> to write another one to Kulau to say, having woken up to my uh, to my hangover, basically, I, I thought I could do better. And yeah, so it made this canon on the BACH theme, but then with uh, words underneath that said, cool, nicht lau, cool, but not lukewarm, which is a play on Kulau's name. Yeah. yeah, so it was really, really charming. And unfortunately, the two composers, as far as we know, never, never met again in person in their lifetimes. Mm-hmm. So it's just a really interesting intersection that just kind of happened right in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. I love that story. And so I was going to ask, why did you choose to record both Beethoven and Kulau together? What was it about that combination that captured both of your interests? I think it's really hard to get away from Kulau as a flute composer in in the early 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, he was such a defining figure for that repertoire. And mm-hmm. we wanted to find 
something that would contrast with that and something to, to kind of spell out where the romantic sound of the flute was kind of coming from or responding to. Mm-hmm. And this piece by Beethoven is kind of, yeah, it, it's an earlier work and it's not as, let's say, large scale and dramatic as we tend to think about Beethoven. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, really a collection of vignettes. And the Kulau is really a kind of a big Persian carpet of <laughs> of late classical or early romantic sonata style. So yeah, and we, we really liked this intersection idea of how they met and the canon that wrote. So yeah. Yeah. Well, it all fits together beautifully and, and the recording really, really flows. But I just thought it was interesting and I, I wanted listeners to know. So we are going to listen to a piece of each, a very short piece by Beethoven, the Serenade in D major for piano and flute, Opus 31, Allegro Molto, and the last few minutes of a piece by Kulau, Grand Sonata Concertante in A minor for piano and flute, Opus 85, 4, Rondo, Allegro, Poco, Agitato. And on the Kulau piece, we're going to hear percussion. Yes. So tell us what's going on there. <laughs> well, the Forte Piano is an 1820 Rosen. Well, it's Mike, my friend Mike. <laughs> um, Forget about the Rosenberger. Yeah. yeah, you and Mike. Yeah. <laughs> so the Rosenberger piano has six pedals. And one of them, of course, is the quote-unquote normal pedal, the damper pedal that you that you sustain with. There's a soft pedal. There's a, a moderator, which is a little piece of cloth that comes in between the strings and the piano hammers. So it gives this kind of really veiled mm-hmm. sound. But it also has a couple of kind of bonus tricked out pedals. One of them is a bassoon pedal, which is a piece of paper that touches the string. So you get this kind of buzzy, reedy sound. Wow. Yeah, I, um, yeah, I didn't have a chance to use that one in this recording. But uh, yeah, so it's like 200 years before John Cage. And that's definitely the, the same principle. And then the last stop is what's called the Turkish stop, which is, um, it's a pedal. And when you stamp on the pedal, there's a drum that's attached to the to the bottom of the soundboard which is really loud and then also and that's attached to a set of bells on the interior of the piano yeah i didn't know if it was cymbals or bells now was that written into the music not in a manner of speaking i mean there's no real symbol for that in in the notation but it was just such a festive moment in the music and um, yeah it works great it's fun yeah for sure Well, let's take a listen. And and before we do listen, I want to thank Classic Pianos for making this podcast possible. Classic Pianos underwrites all of our expenses and just thankful for them. So now let's listen to Xuan Chai's new recording, Cool Nihlao. Thank you. 
So as I mentioned to you originally, after I first heard the recording, I thought your timing was really, really beyond tight. It was so tight. And the phrasing from you both was so phenomenal, and you're both so intentional. And the recording was done 
so intimately. I just really was impressed by this. Thank you. Really beautiful work. Thanks so much. Yeah, absolutely. And it had a special ambiance to it. And I read that it was recorded in a special environment. Can you tell us about where you recorded this and the engineer who recorded this Mm -hmm. for you? This was recorded at the Westfest Church, Westfest 90 is called, in Schiedam, which is spelled S-C-H-I-E-D-A-M, Schiedam. It's a small town in between The Hague and Rotterdam. It's a small church which has a chamber music concert series and is often used for a lot of recordings, actually, here in the Netherlands. Mm. And uh, yeah, we were just really lucky to be able to to use the space, which is really intimate and historical and also just across the street from this really great windmill that's still working and still milling flour and all sorts of things. So yeah, it's just really nice to go outside after you do a take or two and yeah. fresh air. And then there's a canal, there's a working windmill. And yeah, it's a nice feeling. Beautiful little town, harbor town. And the recording engineer is Rainer Arndt, mm-hmm. who was fantastic. I mean, so on top of it. Oh, I was going to say his miking was so good. Absolutely. Yeah, he really captured the essence of, I mean, it was so full. Like there was no lack in the tone. There was no hollowness that was done so well. And he specializes in recording these early, early instruments, instruments right? Yeah. Tammy came into the project with absolutely, having worked with him before, I think, you know, just with full confidence. And I, I had to get to know him and also just the mm-hmm. way of recording. At, at a certain point, you've just done take after take and you get a bit saturated and you're no longer mm-hmm. sure <laughs> if what you've just done is good or bad or if you should change something. And I think I went into the experience really trying to control everything quite a lot. And I really yeah. wanted to listen back right after every take. And at yeah. some point, Reiner just told me, you know, this isn't helping and you're you're disrupting your own flow and you have to just get back there. It's really hard whether you're writing music or words, you're in the moment and you're like, does this even make sense? Am I articulating what I think I'm articulating? I don't think I am. And you just get all neurotic and and really space (laughs) is so important. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. That's why you have other people in there producing you or helping you with that because that's, yeah. Well, I never would have picked that up in a million years from you. Well, it's uh, a great credit to him and to Tammy who had also such a strong vision for for the interpretation. So that was great. Yeah, beautifully done. So where and when will people be able to find this recording? Well, we actually released on... March 13th of this year, and the Netherlands went into lockdown on the 15th. (laughs) So (laughs) we didn't get to do any of our CD release events, which is really Mm. a pity. But we're hoping in the fall that we'll be able to get some chances to bring this out to people. We've already gotten some really nice reviews, and and that's been great, just that the music press has carried on through all of this very unusual time in history. And, And it's just nice to know that there are people who are listening and who really hear what we're trying to do and and just enjoying actually you know whether people yeah. listen critically or whether they're just um, putting something on because it's um it's something that speaks to them it's uh, it's really meaningful to me mm-hmm. well mission accomplished now i want to let people know also that you're not limited to this genre of early music and instruments we spent most of our time talking about the recording and your early 
instrument interest just because it's so unique and you've done so many cool things with it. But you've performed a litany of composers, some composers which most might guess like Bach and so forth, but also composers such as Cage and Prokofiev. So mm-hmm. just curious, like what attracts you to certain works and, and what is exciting to you currently? Well, it's a little hard to say because uh, with the situation and with performing arts right now, I am definitely just engaged in trying to salvage performing arts mm. for not just myself and my colleagues, but for the people who really want to consume it, who want to listen, who want to be there. Yeah. I guess before this whole time, you know, I was always constructing programs around a situation or a story or a theme or, you know, for example, Beethoven and his contemporaries or John Cage and dance or the narrative mm-hmm. element in Prokofiev. Now it, it can't be so diffuse. And I'm trying to find ways of bringing different art forms together so that it's not just a, a piano concert, but that. Mm-hmm. You might have a dancer, you might have a poet who comes in to read something, you might have some chamber music, you might have a singer, you might, you know, so everything kind of comes together to pack more of a punch. Yeah, you're trying to cast a wider net yes. to get more people and give exposure to a wider variety, which in turn will gain new audience members of the different things, right? Yeah, but also I, I really think that the arts need to work together on this. And it's easy to say, well, we we really have to save music and for the dancers to say, we really have to do this. But I think if we kind of come together as an arts community and not just as a music community, then we have so much to say to each other and so much to say Mm -hmm. together to everyone else. And it's hard to watch also that the budgets uh, worldwide for performing arts are really just crashing down at this moment. And we all feel a sense of responsibility, I think, to step up and keep our sphere viable. Well, it's such a unique time and that we can't gather, right? And so we can't perform in groups and performance is something that is so different live. But one thing you can do is cast a wide net, as I said earlier, by doing some Zoom stuff, right? You could do some Zoom performances. Have you thought about that during this time or have you already done that? Um, I just did my first one yesterday. <laughs> yesterday, yeah. yes. Interestingly, it was uh, done in our music room. So my, my husband, Shinsuke, is a violinist, and we played uh, mm. two, two sonatas, one by Beethoven and the other one by his pupil, Ferdinand Ries, uh, which most people mm. haven't heard of, and that's a pity because he's amazing. So we pre-recorded it because it was for a a music festival in Japan, the Chofu Music Festival. Mm -hmm. And just to prevent any kind of technical glitches in the live stream, we recorded it first and then we did the interview part live. I have to say it was incredibly (laughs) nerve-wracking for me. I was just going to ask you because you've done... You've done so much live recording, more than most people I know, and you choose hard pieces to record (laughs) live. I'm thinking, are you kidding me? So I was going to ask if you get nervous, and and you do. You don't look it. When I watch you, you're like, let me tackle this thing, and you're so focused. And I was wondering, I thought, gosh. I've hosted my life, I've hosted hundreds of concerts. And I'm always surprised because sometimes I'll talk to somebody who's just about to go on and I think of them as being cool as a cucumber. And I say, so are you nervous? And they say, 
I want to throw <laughs> up. And I'm like, you, but, <laughs> but you, do, you do this for a living. Like, why would you do this if, oh, you know? So anyway. Yeah. What has been interesting for me is that it's so much harder for me to play for a camera than it is for a room full of people. Mm. And I used to have huge problems with being nervous Really? Yeah. Um, I've known you for a long time. I've never known that. I guess I never asked. Yeah, I think it was before, I think probably before I met you. Okay. I had um, the three last fingers of my left hand would actually kind of glue together. <laughs> That's um, terrible. It was oh. terrible. And, you know, I'm a pianist. I need my fingers, but, yeah. you know, they would just refuse to, to move. And then my left foot would just grind like down into the ground and I mm. wouldn't be able to move it. And actually, I, <laughs> I played, played a concert in this state. Well, I played a lot of concerts in the state, this complete like panic paralysis. But I had a really, a concert that meant a lot to me and it went so terribly. It went so badly. And mm. my mentor at the time uh, was a wonderful, wonderful man named Klaus Christian Schuster. He was in the audience and he came right up to me afterwards and he shook me and asked, what happened to you? Because he'd never seen me perform before, actually. And I'd just been working with him for a whole week, a wonderful week. And, and he was just so perplexed at what happened to me when I walked yeah. on stage. Much to his credit, you know, he kind of looked at my face and saw how incredibly disappointed I was. And he said, you know what? We were in Cornwall. We were in England when this happened. And he mm -hmm. said, you know, the best thing about performing in a church in Cornwall is that there's a set of steps that go out the door, and then there's going to be a little stone path. And in these small towns, that stone path leads inevitably to the town pub. And that, <laughs> <laughs> and that is where we're going to go. And um, so we went there and we talked about everything. We talked about all, all sorts of things, just not about performing, not about music. Yeah. And I had a wonderful evening. And at the end of the evening, he said, you know, I'm going to think about your problem and I'm going to, I'm going to talk to you about this in the morning. And I said, okay. So the next morning at breakfast, so he came to me and he says, I've been thinking that basically you have to decide because um, life is too short to feel this awful after mm. performing. Mm -hmm. and, um, and also, if you want this as your career, then you don't have anything to look forward to. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> Right. Yeah. So, you know, you have to work on this. And the way you have to work on this is to perform as often as possible. Can you, mm. you know, when you go back to um, Boston, which is where I was living at the time, when you go back to Boston, can you find a place that you could perform like every week, every other week or something like that? Oh, and I thought, gosh, it's so hard to get concerts and, and all these things, you know, because I was, I was really just starting out. I said, well, no, I, I can't think of anything like that. And he said, well, you know, think hard about it because you have to get this to go away. You have to come to enjoy performing. Otherwise, it's not worth it for you. Mm -hmm. So I was completely depressed because I was sure that that couldn't possibly happen. And I went back to, to Boston and it just happened that the first concert that I had back was something through the NEC um, outreach office, um, the New England Conservatory outreach yeah. office. And I was playing at a retirement facility called Orchard Cove. And I went there and I played and it went really well. And the lady who looked after all of the events and concerts, she was just so wonderful. And I started talking to her and she asked me to come back and play again. And then I just suddenly thought, well, are there other retirement facilities in the Boston area? Yeah. <laughs> and she kind of 
looked at me like I was <laughs> you know, completely, you know, ignorant, which I was, of course, at the time. And um, she handed me a list of, oh, I don't know, about a hundred, wow. maybe more. And so I just got on the phone and I called every single one. And within within a couple months, I was, I was literally playing maybe five concerts a week mm. and sometimes even more than one per day. And it took about a year and a half of doing this for my kind of weird symptoms to go away. Yeah. So my left hand no longer glues to itself and I can move my left foot during yeah. the concert now, which is really handy, especially when you're playing a piano with six pedals. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, since then I've, I've just realized that it comes, for me, it comes down to preparation. Yeah. If I'm well prepared, then I look forward to a concert and I'm not nervous. Well, this whole story is worth the price of admission right there. And you just knocked off my next two questions, which was, <laughs> uh, was there anything that you wanted to share with students? And I think that's a, a really mm, good sure. story, yeah. just the repetition yeah. of it. Yeah. Is there anything you'd like to share that, that I haven't covered? Well, I have a, a website that I need to update. <laughs> so <laughs> well, that's a good website. It's um, uh, my wonderful husband did that. Um, he's uh, multi-talented. So thank you. What's your web address? It's schwanchai.com, right? Yeah. So S-H-U-A-N-N-C-H-A-I.com. And you've got lots of great material. You're sick of your material because it's yours. <laughs> but all the people listening right now, they're like, wow, there's all this great stuff. And so <laughs> you, it's a good website. There's, there's a lot of good stuff. All right. So you can visit schwanchai.com. It is contrary to what this conversation might lead you to believe. It's a good website with lots of good <laughs> material on there. All right. Anything else that you want to talk about at all? Well, I do want to go back to one question that you asked me that I didn't quite circle back to answering, which was what draws me to a piece of music or mm -hmm. to, to something that I wanted to work on. Yeah. What I'd like to say about that is that it's, uh, it's about, for me, it's about a story. And the reason that I think about a story is because I think that one of the main things that music does for people, for performers as well as listeners, um, is that it it's a place where people's empathy is needed. Hmm. And I think in order for that to be kind of activated on both sides, I think there needs to be kind of a, a story that draws you in. And so I I look for that story whenever I play something. And also when I do some teaching, master classes and so forth, I find myself saying a lot, like, if you were directing this as a movie, what would be happening right now? Stop thinking about your fingers and tell me if if you've got your camera on an action scene or, you know, are you trying to build suspense or is the protagonist going to die? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's moments like these that, that try to, that I try to visualize and that I try to squeeze the story, the emotion, the reason to connect. Mm -hmm. I think that's important. And especially now that, that people need to find connection. Yeah. Well, you're engaging your imagination also, right? And you're trying yes. to, to draw people in, maximize the creative process. I, you're an artist. I think you, I don't know if you sell yourself short, but I think you're so fine as a pianist. I hear, you know, Hey, I have a podcast called the piano whisperer. I hear a lot of pianists. <laughs> I, I, you're, you're super duper talented and I, and I want people to hear you. Thank you. Yeah. I, I can hear your imagination. That's what I was trying to get to when I was watching your Beethoven videos. 
super engaged that way and and definitely telling a story and i i i caught that so thanks just many heartfelt thanks for joining me for this episode i know that people will enjoy it i really enjoyed catching up and hearing all your thoughts about these things thank you ben it's great to talk to you thanks so much you're welcome and i also want to thank all of the listeners out there who took the time to listen and also to classic pianos our sponsor I'm generally grateful for the opportunity to speak with uh, artists like Shuan, and I'm really grateful that people are out there listening. If you'd like to find out more about Piano Whisperer or if you'd like to check out past episodes, please visit our website at pianowhisperer.org or we're on all of the major streaming platforms as well as Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. So take care, everyone, and I look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And thanks again to our sponsor, Classic Pianos, who makes these ongoing podcasts possible. To learn more about Piano Whisper and to hear earlier broadcasts, please visit pianowhisperer.org. We would be grateful if you would take a minute to rate and review us on whatever platform you use, Spotify, Apple Music, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Podbeam, and TuneIn. See you next time.